Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 126 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and today I'm joined by Jeff McGee to discuss the ending of John Borman's Excalibur. You, you can run, but you can't hide. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm sat here. What you just said there before we started recording um, um, gave me a little bit of trepidation. But uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Now, today, Excalibur. We're talking Excalibur. And um, this has been on the cards for quite a while because I don't think it was even the last time you were on the show. I think it was the show before that you had mentioned, I'd like us to do Excalibur at some point. I think it was. And, uh, I, and I had a thought while I was watching it. I don't remember if I... Uh... I mentioned it at the time, but uh, the last time I watched Excalibur before this 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 previous time that I watched it yesterday to prep for the show, I realized it plays like it was the film that Monty Python and the Holy Grail was parodying, but it came out, what, six, seven years later? Yes, yes. Now, it's very funny that you should mention that because, you know, I am a massive fan of Excalibur. It's one of my favorite films, and I hold it in the highest esteem but I've never got round to um, uh, getting it on Blu-ray until last year, right? And never really watch it because I watched it so much when it was in the cinema and I watched it so much when I had it on video, um, you know, and occasionally the mood will take me. But I haven't watched it for ages. And then I got it on Blu-ray. Um, and it, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I had never, ever made that connection. I think I was too close to it. When the film first came out, I, I was entranced by it. I fell in love with it. And... I, I couldn't step away from it enough to go, hang on, this is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This visually looks an awful lot like the forest where the Knights of Knee are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly, and even even the music and some of the uh, the framing of some of the shots. And, and the reason for that is the when I, I watched it about a year or so ago when we had first when we had talked about it last, and I had just seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the theater for the first time uh, a month or two before. And I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, is this... And I had to look up the, the dates on it, because I thought, I thought this came out in the 80s. Nice. And sure enough, it did. But I'm like, how did he... Did Had John Borman never seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Did he not know that this ground had already been covered? I think this, the, the, the similarity in, in, in both films is... And this is what I like about Excalibur and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, is, you know... If you were to go back in a time machine to the time of the Dark Ages, it would look this horrible, this nasty. You know, you know the line in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it must be a king, why he hasn't yeah. got shit all over him. Exactly. You know? It was a filthy place. And, and I think, you know, um, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, you know, history fans, especially Terry Jones, you know, he was an expert right. on Chaucer. He knows how grubby and horrible the Middle Ages were. So that was, you know, them doing that 
you know, for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But, you know, cinematically as well, the lighting and everything, they are very, very similar, aren't they? They, they really are. In fact, you know, in, in some of the scenes, like Excalibur, and, and we may, I may be jumping the gun a little bit, but Excalibur, the whole film looks like it was filmed with like a gauze over the camera lens to me. Now that's it's just got, the shitty weather. Right, right, exactly. And and there are sections of Monty Python and the Holy Grail that look the same way, and so that's kind of what I assumed this time. And I guess they all that the the similarities come down to them both sort of being pretty faithfully based on the same source material. Mm. I would and assume. also, yeah, location wise, I mean, both films take um, you know, a place a lot of the time in forests and. Holy Grail was filmed in North Wales. Ireland is a short trip across the the sea. Um, So visually, um, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the landscapes, the landscapes are very, very similar. So you will have the same sort of rock formations. You will have the same uh, flora and fauna everywhere. There was even one scene and it was it was after um, it was near the end of the movie, about probably three quarters of the way through the film. And I can't remember which one of the nights it was. It may have been Percival. Thing was Percival was walking right before he ran into uh, Lancelot there at the end, and it's all these people that are are just like tossing around in the mud, yeah. Yeah. and the only, all I could think of was come and see the violence, violence inherent in the system. <laughs> help, help! I'm being repressed. Yeah, Dennis, you're talking about Dennis, the yes. argumentative peasant at the yes. beginning. It is, it is. I, I think you're right. It's coming back to me now. Yeah, when, when they're all like beating up Percival, yes, uh, and Lancelot's leading them on, they do look <laughs> as grubby as the uh, constitutional peasant in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, definitely. But I'd never seen it. This is, I think, I put it on Facebook when, um, you know, when I watched it on Blu-ray. It had never, ever, ever occurred to me. You know, I'm a big Monty Python fan, and you know, and I, and I know that film backwards, but I'd never visually connected the two, and it's hard not to see it now, isn't it? It, it, it really is, and especially you know, once you, once you notice it, it's hard to unnotice it. Mm, yeah. All right. So, so when what what's your history with Excalibur? Because you said, oh, I'd like us to do Excalibur, but when, when, when were you first aware of it? When did you see it? The first time that I saw clips from it, I believe we may have actually watched the entire thing. When I was in the seventh grade, we were just... What, we were, uh, so, hang on, Jeff. What does seventh grade mean? That, that means nothing to me here. Sorry, in I was about 13. 13, right. Yeah, between okay. 12, and, 12 and 13 years old. Uh, I was in a, a class in school, and we were discussing uh, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Right. And that got us on the subject of King Arthur, and I mentioned, casually mentioned the teacher, and it was a smaller class, a class of about 13 people. I mentioned to the teacher that I was had always been very interested in the Arthurian legend. And she said, okay, I've got a whole unit on that coming up. And so we spent the better part of six weeks discussing uh, La Morte d'Arthur and the Idols of the King after that. Mm-hmm. And I had notes upon notes upon notes. And when we got to the end, she showed us Excalibur and she said, now I'm going to show you this. Just so you know, there's some nudity. So we're going to kind of just pretend we didn't see it. So I saw it then, but I saw it very disjointedly because we had 45-minute classes. So we watched it over the course of probably three classes. Right. And I was having a hard time following it, even though I knew the story. Because, again, we had spent a lot of time studying uh, these these two works uh, based on the Arthurian legend. And I didn't see it again until I was probably in college. I got it uh, on DVD for my birthday one year, and I sat down to watch it. And I still remember going, wow, I, I just cannot follow this story. And I know the story. Like, I could pick out bits and pieces, like, okay, I know where this is coming from, I know where this is coming from. And so I didn't go back to it for a long time, and then I finally went back to it again, uh, again, about a year, year and a half ago, watched it again, 
And that's when I realized Excalibur is a lot like David Lynch's Dune. It's Those are the only movies that I can watch just because I find them so visually appealing. But the stories taken on their own make zero sense the way the film is edited. And I think so, a lot... Yeah, so, so, uh, sorry. I think I think the problem you might be having is because if you if you had studied, you know, uh, you know the texts, right? Excalibur takes a piece from here, a piece from there. It becomes a real smorgasbord of you know uh, sources. Right. So maybe they, they in your mind it's not working because you know how these things should be playing out. Well, it's not even that because I had to go back and look uh, to to remember because I kept I was I watched it yesterday with my girlfriend. She had never seen it, and I thought this is going to be interesting to see how she follows along because she's not as familiar with the Arthurian legend as I am. Uh, most people I know aren't because I'm a giant nerd. And uh, we were watching it, and uh, Helen Mirren showed up. I said, "Oh yeah, this is this is Morgan Le Fay," and they kept referring to her as Morgana. And I thought, "Wait a minute, do I have that wrong? Am I thinking?" Because then I thought, "Well." There's a Morgan Le Fay and Mordred in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. Am I conflating those characters and getting them mixed up? And I did some research like, okay, no, no, this is the same character. And we got done and she said, yeah, I feel like I feel like I just watched like a truncated Cliff Notes version where it, it felt like a medley. So I felt like I watched a medley or a two and a half hour um, montage of the story and I got bits and pieces, but there, there, and what I realized is there's just no connective tissue. One scene does I, not lead to the other, and there are no transitional shots. And, and, and very, there are very few like fades. It just cuts from one scene to the next, and you, it's sort of dis, uh, disorienting. I think it is a film of set pieces, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. There are many, many, you know, you know terrific scenes, but the glue that that binds them together may be. I think that's what you're picking up on that they don't blend together properly. So right. you have the, 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 these various set pieces, and, and and that's very interesting. What your partner said about you know it's like a montage then, what, isn't and it? And the other thing she said that I thought was perfect. She said it feels like the actors are just speaking the dialogue portions of the story, and everything else has been completely ignored. Mm. Well, of course, you, you know if you're talking about actors and dialogue, a lot of them, you know, the people that are very well established, we know now, you know, in many cases, it was their first ever, you, you know, appearance right. in front of the camera. I mean, we can look back now and go, oh, there's Liam Neeson, there's Gabriel Byrne, you know, there's you know Helen Patrick Mirren Stewart, and all that. Yeah, but Helen Mirren, yeah. Patrick Stewart, yeah. Um, how how weird to see Patrick Stewart in it because you forget that these people who are now virtually icons in in Hollywood this this is it this is their ground zero isn't it it is and and it this is where I'm gonna I'm, I'm probably gonna tick off I may tick off you and and the rest of your uh, a lot of your countrymen John Borman as a director has done the impossible he's, oh dear. <laughs> he's a he's 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 encouraged Patrick Stewart Gabriel Byrne Helen Mirren and Liam Neeson to give horrible performances. Right. Patrick Stewart, I agree with Patrick Stewart. He is a bit, yes. Um, it's the wrong kind of over the top. It is, it is. When he swears allegiance, or no, 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 when he um, goes to pull Excalibur out the stone and, you know, by my yes. right of combat, da-da-da-da-da, and then scratches his forehead and, and like that. It, I don't mind it, though. I mean, that, that they are strange performances. I mean, you know, the king at the top of the heap of strange performances is Nicole Williamson with his accent. Um, right, 
But it just makes it odd, you know, and I like that about John Borman films. I mean, the film I was aware of before Excalibur of his um, was Deliverance, right. which is a fantastic film, a deeply disturbing film, and it's got an oddness about it. And Zardoz, and if you want to talk <laughs> oddness, then you've yeah. got Zardoz, haven't you? Right. You know? that's, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's the one with Sean Connery in a red diaper, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, with yeah. big floating head in the sky. I but, get Zardoz and Outland confused. Uh, no, 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 no. Outfit-wise, no, no, no. Right. A bit different. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I don't mind it. For, for, for everything that you and your partner are saying, I don't mind it. And I think a lot of it, for me, is I was just so relieved when Excalibur came out and I saw it because, like yourself... I've I've read the texts. I mean, you know, ever since I can remember, I've loved history, right? And um, um, particularly, you know, the Roman Empire, Celtic history and Celtic mythology. And especially, oh, hang on a second, Jeff, I've got to make a... All right, sorry about that, Jeff. No right, problem. That's to 13. Where, where was I? Uh, yeah, sorry about the interruption. Um you um, talking about yeah. the performances, not minding the, the performances? No, that was my lawyer oh, calling. Oh, you talking about... Um, uh... You're talking about John Borman films. Yeah, it was John Borman's lawyer. He's uh, he's instructed me to uh, sue you for everything you've said so far. All right. But I love Point Blank. <laughs> yeah, and all right. Deliverance. Okay. I love yeah, Point yeah. Blank and Deliverance, yeah. All right. Okay. So, no, no, no. I've, I've, I've loved Arthurian legends since I was little, you know. And, um, and it's not hard to draw inspiration from that because here in the UK, you're never more than, what, an hour's drive from somewhere that's got an association with King Arthur or Celtic mythology. You know, you might have an Iron Age hill fort over there. You might have a stone circle over there. There's a legend of a, a, a dragon that lived under the hill over there. You know, England, well, Britain is steeped in mythology. So, you know, I've always been into history, always into Celtic mythology, King Arthur, stuff like that. But always what bothered me as I was growing up is when you saw films about King Arthur or the Romans, it, 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 it was like the Austin Powers thing, you know, when Austin Powers says, isn't it interesting how, you know, driving through the UK in no way looks like California, you know, right. uh, that, that joke. And yes, I, I mean, I grew up reading books about Arthurian uh, legends and then I would watch Knights of the Round Table or Ivanhoe or Prince Valiant California versions where everything's beautiful sunlight, nothing looks like England at all. Everyone's wearing the shiniest of armor. You know, you've got Robert Taylor, this chiseled, you know, clean shaven person. And what I was reading in the books wasn't what I was watching. And I was always disappointed by those films. So when stills started coming out in magazines that John Borman was doing Excalibur, and you start seeing photos of the suits of armor, especially the suits of armor at the beginning of the film. It's like, whoa, you know, and yeah, the, the, the film has, you know, um, uh, flaws to it, but I like the flaws. It, it, it just makes it this unusual film. And, and I get that. And I, I, I'm, I love big performances. I love watching Alan Rickman chew the scenery in anything. Uh, and I, I loved, I love Nickel Williamson in this. He was, I feel like he was setting, sort of setting the tone for everything. And I, I just felt like the over the topness, everyone was playing at a different level. Hmm. Uh, especially as it, uh, Nigel Terry, is that the actor who played uh, yeah. King Arthur? Yeah. Uh, I felt like he was trying to play a little more of the reality, which, which would be fine. 
if everyone around him was insane and he was the stabilizing force. Mm. But I just didn't, I, I had trouble knowing who I was supposed to be following because again, Arthur disappears for, you know, great swaths of the film. He doesn't mm-hmm. even appear until, you know, what, 30 minutes in or so. And then disappears, you know, while we're watching Percival on his quest and and the land is dying. And there are just certain things, for instance, when um, when uh, Morgana is with uh, with Merlin down in the catacombs and he's teaching her the charm of making and Arthur plunges the sword into the into the, the earth after he finds Lancelot and Guinevere together, then the sword goes through Merlin. I never made the connection that that was because Merlin is so connected to the land. Mm. And again, I've seen the movie four or five times in my life, and I just have never made that connection until I was reading online about it. I was trying to figure out what was I missing, and that was a point that just had never been made. I What you're saying there... not I, clearly. No, no. And again, it just adds to the oddness. I mean, you're saying there, you know, there are references to... The supernatural, you know, you, you, you know the way you know Morgan Le Fay she makes right. Mordred, you, you know, age instantly. You know, there's references about the breath of the dragon. We never see a dragon, thank God. We never see a dragon, um, and yeah, now it, it's plucking from all these, you know, s- source materials. And I like that the, it's like oblique references to things. And yeah, you're right. Um, you, you, you know, Merlin um, is one with the land i mean you know at the end he is encased in the land isn't he right yeah so i i I don't mind it i mean i i I think it's a terrific film as i say it's one of my favorite films yeah i I can acknowledge that you know there are you know faults to it but i don't mind it i mean you know um you you know visually it's stunning um you know a lot of care has gone into it i mean you know, it's primarily filmed outside. I, I, I just adore the fact that there's a green hue to um, an awful lot of the film. Somebody's got a green spotlight off to one side, you know. So or there's it, just it's moss gleaming. covering everything, yeah. Or there's moss cu- covering everything. And I, I, I especially like, you know, at the beginning of the film, um, I mean, I mean, you know... Um, um, you, you know, this isn't accurate, you know. Um, they're... That there has never been any proof that there was a real King Arthur, okay? Um, um, that the, the very you you know this, Jeff. The very first right. reference there ever was to Arthur was I think it was about seventh century, where a warrior was being um, written about, and the person writing it says, you know, as brave as and strong as he was, he was no Arthur, right? right. So 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 this strong warrior was being compared to an Arthur but nobody knows who that Arthur is and you know there's been countless searches you know over the decades you know to try and find it out I mean a lot of the theory is that there was a a a Roman called Artus A-R-T-U-S who was like a a Roman general um, who stayed behind after the Romans pulled out of Britain in the fifth century that's you, you know presaging the dark ages and there is some thought that this that this Roman guy was uniting the various tribes because back then, you know, Britain was just it was lots of little tribes, right? Okay? And 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 each one had a warlord, and they didn't get on, and they're always fighting. And you know, the story of King Arthur is is bringing the people to fight against the the invaders, which was the Saxons. Um, and there is some th- historical possibilities that somebody like that did exist back in the fifth century but of course 
in the fifth century, what you see in Excalibur, what you see when, when Robert Taylor is in, you know, Knights of the Round Table, knights didn't exist in the fifth century. They, they, the, the idea of knights and chivalry and, uh, and all that stuff wasn't until about a thousand years later. Um, if, if, if you imagine a, a Dark Ages soldier, if you imagine the sort of thing that the, the Romans were wearing without all the frills, you pretty much got it. It's, it's all right. leather. You, you, you know, the idea of these suits uh, of armor are a thousand years away. So this is obviously set in the Dark Ages, um, although they've got suits of armor. And I like at the beginning of the film, when you see them, the brilliant, brilliant suits of armor, they're all dark and gnarly, aren't they? You know, they and are at that very first scene. Yeah, they're, it's, it, they just look heavy, yeah. which, which they would have been. Oh, most definitely. I remember um, over here in the UK when this film came out, we had a, a, a terrific film reviewer called uh, John Borman. And no, not John Borman, John Bronson. And he said that he liked this gnarly thing. It's almost as if, you know, the knights, the soldiers, the people are like dinosaurs on the edge of extinction up until the point where Arthur draws the sword out of the stone and then everything becomes, you know, light. You know, and I like that analogy that, you know, mankind's almost or England is almost on the edge of extinction with these soldiers who are just just these beasts, aren't they? I mean, that that battle at the beginning is incredibly brutal, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I I had forgotten just how brutal it was as I'm watching it this time, because I'm, I'm watching it, I, I bought it on iTunes. And so I'm watching it in, in, you know, high def for the first time. Cause I, the last time I saw it was on a DVD that I think was even letterbox. I don't think it was even anamorphic widescreen. So, right. uh, I, I'd, I'd forgotten just, I would love to see this film on the big screen just because I, I feel like that would give me the best idea of what it really is. See, I think that's why I was blown away by it because I was looking forward to it. And back then where I lived, our local flea pit was about two miles away across the fields. You had to walk two miles across the fields. Uh, it was the nearest cinema. And that's what we used to do. We used to walk across the fields to uh, to see films there rather than catch the bus to the you know the, the big town, which was like six miles away. And I can remember watching Excalibur. You had your own Excalibur. quest just to get to see Excalibur. I had a quest, yeah. I, it's <laughs> the very same cinema I saw, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, like six, seven years before. That was, by the way, that's the very first film I ever lied about my age to go <laughs> and see was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But I can remember coming back and it was the evening and it was dark and it was, and it was lovely because, you know, I'd just seen this film about King Arthur. Finally, uh, a story about King Arthur, you know, that I can, you know, get on board with. And I'm walking down these country lanes and the winds blowing in the trees you know and and that's always stayed with me that experience of watching it on the big screen and then walking home in the dark for two miles um i saw it many more times in the cinema because a year later uh that's when i become a projectionist at that cinema that was like five miles away and i did show it on reruns so you need to see it on the big screen i think you really do yeah, the, the the next time it gets uh, gets shown anywhere around here, I'm definitely going to try to make it. I would really like to see... I know the original version of the story was about three hours long. Yes, it was, yeah. And I would love to see that to see if, if it makes more narrative sense, if there's more connected tissue, or if it's just more of the same, like you said, set piece after set piece after set piece. Mm, mm. Um, the set pieces are terrific. I mean, that opening battle is terrific. Um, you say you... you you were shown it at school and there was some nudity. Was the sex scene between Uther and Egraine in it? Oh, yes. 
Yeah, I, was. I was I was I was surprised because again, I'm, high school that was less of a less of a problem. We watched Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet in high school, and you know the warning was, by the way, you know there's some nudity, just you know let it let it go by. I was amazed when I saw this one. I think we all had to get permission slips to watch it. Right, because I've, I've I've seen that there was a trimmed version which was shown on commercial TV and stuff, and I thought maybe that might have uh, excised uh, the the sex scene. You know, it's not it's, really a love scene, is it? I mean, she, it's, it's she's so uh, you know, she's now practically that I being raped, it, isn't she? Right. Well, now that I think of it, I'm wondering if because it's been you know, I, it's been 30 years since then. Um, it's possible that that's what we saw. They didn't completely remove the sex, but did remove the nudity. Right. Because yeah. I remember when I finally, I think I may have rented it after that, um, around the same time, and I was surprised at the nudity. So I think mm. maybe that's. I think I'm maybe. Uh, combining those two experiences because i did yeah. I, I saw it then then i rented it not too long after that so i could watch it all in one sitting and was surprised by the nudity kind of like the first time i saw caddyshack not on network television i was surprised at at uh, all of the nudity in that mm, mm. I, I i just remember watching that for the first time and thinking oh golly because you've got gabriel byrne who is terrific as uh uther pendragon i think he, he he's brilliant but yeah you have this sex scene where he doesn't even take his armor off Right. Um, I, I guess he's got a little flap at the front that comes undone or something. One would assume. Yes, and Igraine. And of course, that's John Borman's daughter. I wondered about that. Which That's that's his daughter. Is, is so another it, kind of icky. Yes, yes. So you're <laughs> filming your daughter um, she, because she thinks it's her husband, doesn't right. she? Um, Everybody uh, except Morgana thinks it's, thinks it's uh, Corn, Duke of Cornwall. Yes, yeah, and um, yeah, so, but yeah, I'm thinking, oh, blimey, um, but yeah, so we have all these set pieces, um, the ones I, that are standouts for me, that, you know, if I'm going to watch a bit of Excalibur, um, it, it is the whole drawing of the sword for the first time, you know, because we haven't mentioned the music yet either, I think music is crucial to Excalibur, you know, because, you know, they're using Richard Wagner, they're using Karloff, and you've got Trevor Jones doing the uh, the specially composed stuff. But when Arthur pulls the sword out for the first time, you know, and you, you know you have that triumphant music start, my lip starts going. I'd start doing a Chris, you know, <laughs> and my, my lip starts going. And also shortly after that, you know, um, where you know they don't want to swear allegiance to a boy, and right. um, you know, Urian says, "What well, swear, swear allegiance to a boy?" And uh, and Arthur says, "You're right. I'm not a knight. You Urians will knight me." And uh, he picks the sword up, and everyone's, "Go on, Urians, use it, use it, use it. Take it, take it." And again, that music swells as he's uh, as Urian knights Arthur. And I've got goosebumps now just just talking about it. It was just something about this film connected with me, you know. Oh, and also at the end, at the end, you know, um, just prior to the final battle, when you know. Um, Percival comes back to Arthur and and says to Kay, gather my knights. You know, it's like, knights, sw squires, prepare for battle. And they ride off to O Fortuna, you know. Oh, and all the blossom starts coming out on the trees. Um, oh, amazing stuff. It really is. Like I said, it, the imagery in this film is phenomenal. It's remarkable. Like I said, I, regardless of any issues I have with the storytelling, I will always go back to this movie just because... For for two reasons: one, it's it's a beautiful film, and two, Nicole Williamson as Merlin just I'm just sort of infatuated with that with with that that portrayal because 
first off, I keep trying to figure out if the helmet that he's wearing is actually digging into his forehead or not. And I'm also trying to figure out just how many of his lines have been looped. Because every once in like about half of his dialogue sounds like it's the it sounds like the the sound is coming from somewhere else. And the cadence is all over the place as well, yes. isn't it? You know, um, you know when he's talking about you know catching the fish and things like that, and um, you know, and when um, Arthur says, "Oh, that was easy," he goes, "Is it? I couldn't have done it." You know, um, he, he is very good. I mean, Nicole Williamson. I mean, it it is a Connecticut in. Uh, King Arthur's Court is that the one? Yeah, that's the one. That's the story where Merlin is actually living backwards, isn't he? he yes. He he he's he's an old Unstuck man who, time, who's gradually yeah. growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he's living backwards. So he's already had the twentieth century in the nineteenth, eighteenth, seventeenth. He's going backwards to the rest of us, and I can really see Nicole Williamson's Merlin being that one. I mean, it's what they did in Sword in the Stone, didn't they? In Disney's Sword in the Stone, yes. that is that Merlin. You know. Hmm. All right, so shall we talk about our sequence now, after nearly half an hour of uh, waffling away? Yeah, why not? Shall we get into it? All right, then. Let, let, let's do it, then. When you cast it in, what did you see? I saw nothing but the wind on the water. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men... Do as I command. One day, a king will come, and the sword will rise again. Um, the battle that precedes our segment for today, um, are you aware of the fact that that whole last battle between Arthur and Mordred's forces uh, was actually filmed indoors? I was not. Yeah. It's an indoor riding school in Ireland. Um, and they used it because, you know, 
because it's a riding school, you have to have a soft floor. So it is a soil floor. And they needed that so you wouldn't hear all the, you know, the clopping of the... Clopping uh, of the hose. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense because they also had to use... Uh, the dry ice budget on this movie must have been half of the, half of the money exactly they spent Exactly right. On. It wasn't... Uh, for the battle, it wasn't dry ice. It was smoke. Um, right, the smoke you, you know, they burnt bee beeswax, and yeah, they had to do that to hide the walls that uh, of of this riding school. I just, I just think that's absolutely brilliant that a battle that sustained and that moody and that atmospheric is actually indoors at a riding school. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's that's mm. yeah, that's outstanding. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, so like you and said, so- most of it takes place outside. So I just, I. It's you just seamless. assume it's outside because it's nighttime as well, isn't it? This this last battle is just before sunrise, right? Um, and um, so when you do go to outside for continuity, that's when you have the dry ice machines. You have the mist everywhere, you know. And uh, this sequence we're going to talk about: um, Mordred's already dead. Um, Arthur has killed Mordred again. That's a very graphic scene where he plunges the sword into um, into Mordred. And Mordred yeah, impales him, like, him at the same time. He pulls like the Urukai at the end of uh, Fellowship of the Ring, where he just pulls him closer, pulls Absolutely. the spear into him, and then stabs him. This film was rated PG. I was amazed by that. Was he a PG? It was a PG in the US. With the nudity and that scene and everything, I guess because there's no language? I, I don't oh. know. Oh, over here it was an AA. And an AA back then, we don't have it anymore. We have a 15. Um, um, and an AA is... Anyone over the age under the age of fourteen has to have an adult with them. You know? Right, we should have probably been a PG thirteen here had that rating existed at the time. I mean, it's a fifteen now on my Blu-ray. It's a fifteen. Um, yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, that yeah, that is pretty nasty. What happens to both of them? Um, and you've got, um, as you say, Nigel Terry as Arthur. I don't like his old man makeup. He's much more convincing as like a teen. Arthur than an old he is he was like in the mid his mid 30s I think when he was doing this role and yeah it's much more convincing that they when they age him down yes uh and 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 I I buy that I buy him as a teenager than I buy him as as a as a younger man but yeah the old man makeup they just sort of it looks like they've got just it looks like they just smeared gray into his hair yeah and he's got a bit of latex around the eyes right and that but he he doesn't carry but he doesn't carry himself as if he's an an older man and his voice is no different to how he was when he was a young man exactly yeah. the, the timeline is a little is a little strange to me on this whole thing because yeah, i know that the uh, you know percival is on the quest for what is it 10 years in a day yep and then when morgana ages mordred i'm i'm confused as to whether or not that's magic or if it really is another 10 years later yeah i i think it's deliberate i've got a little bit of about that in in behind the scenes i think it's okay. deliberately ambivalent to make it all dreamlike and it's not supposed to make too much sense well and, and that's the thing the film the film feels like a dream the whole thing feels like a fever dream mm. Mm. which is again one thing that i love about it the the tone of the thing is consistent all the way through so yeah. anyway back back to back to the uh all our, right our back sequence. to the sequence yeah percival's there of course and uh, arthur tells percival to take excalibur find a pool of calm water and throw it in um, so he promptly pulls the sword out of Mordred, um, gets on his horse and, and rides to a lake. And again, we have got those smoke machines must be chuffing massive because the, the, the mist is up in the trees when he reaches the shore of that lake. Right. That, yeah. that, that way up high. Unless that's natural. I've got another thing about that in behind the scenes. in it, And it could well. be because, again, that's in keeping with the rest of the film. Yes. So it, it could yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, but he can't throw it in. 
um, and and returns to Arthur, who, who's managed to crawl through all this carnage um, and is now near the seashore. Um, Arthur asks him, uh, what did you see when you cast Excalibur in? And he knows Percival's line because he, he says, you know, he saw nothing, just the wind on the water. Um, and he knows it. He, his head snaps up and he's like, come on, you've got to do what I say. And he commands him to do it. So he gets back on his horse. He returns to the lake. And this time the lady of the lake knows he's going to do it as she presents herself, uh, rising her hand out of the water. And that's right. like that's sort of the uh, that's always been to me the the surviving image of this film is the hand coming up out of the water. Again, the, the, the music sequence. starts yeah. as well, doesn't it? You know. Yes. And we'll talk about it how they did it in a minute, but um, you know, it. I can't believe that there's somebody under the water. That I, I there's a bit of slow motion on there, but you know. You can't fault that at all because when that hand comes up out the water, it's not reversed or anything because there are water droplets drop coming off of her hand back into the water. But it's it's done so smoothly, hasn't it? It does. It, it is. It is. I, I assumed that it. I didn't notice the water droplets. I assumed it was just filmed in reverse. That's what I did. But if you look, you can see the droplets yeah. when the hand comes out. The droplets are coming down, and this is long before CGI for you to put CGI droplets on. You know. Right. Um. So. She, sorry, Percival throws the sword. She catches it and then returns below. We'll talk all about how they did this in a minute, but but she returns below holding the sword. Uh, we have this triumphant music as Percival physically sags in his seat. Um, he returns to Arthur, but he's been borne off on a ship with three maidens to the Isle of Avalon. Okay. Again, not explained in the film, so if you didn't know the story already, you'd be thinking, wait, are they kidnapping yeah. him? Are those, is that Guinevere and the nuns? What? What is this the Undying Lands? Is this, was I he think the, the way bearer? it's shot, you know, it, it is very hazy, and, you know, it's in a distance you see the ship to begin with, and then you get a close-up, and you can see that there's three maidens with their hands together over Arthur's body, and it's very soft focus. I think you're just supposed to assume that this is something mystical happening now you know he's being right. born away these aren't three ladies that have rowed up in a boat you know <laughs> while percival was away and hurriedly pulled him on board and and off they go you know right so we'll come in we'll talk about that in a second uh, but if we start on behind the scenes i don't know how much of this you know jeff if you do i'm sorry for boring you right the but, way you explain it is always riveting, even if I do know. Oh, bless you. I'm going to cancel that <laughs> lawyer. All right. So John Borman um, had planned a film about the Mer Merlin legends um, in the late 60s. Um, but, uh, and he had a three-hour script uh, co-written by him and Rose Pallenberg, you know, the person who actually you know, co-wrote this one. Um, when he took it to United Artists, they said, no way, no, no, too costly. We'll give you Lord of the Rings instead. Now, how they can say, you, you know, the Merlin story is too expensive, have Lord of the Rings. You know? Right. I, that, that blew my mind. And, and it reminded me that, and this is a little sidetrack, so I apologize, but it reminded me that uh, Tolkien always said that he wrote the Lord of the Rings because he wanted England to have its own mythology. Yes. And my thought about that was always, isn't King Arthur sort of that? I don't understand why he said that, because, you know, we're talking about Arthurian mythology today. There is mythology out... out well, I can't say that. Um, <laughs> but, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the country is steeped in, you know, folklore and legend and myth. I, that is a very odd thing to say. 
Yeah. So he was allowed to actually take this script, Lord of the Rings script, to other um, studios. Nobody was interested. So he, he rejected that. But always at the back of his mind was to do a story of Merlin. Actually, one of my Starburst magazines, I think I've that, that there's a little thing. I have to dig it out. Um, there's a little thing that says Merlin coming soon by John Borman. Originally, mm. it was going to be called Merlin um, because he finally did secure the the deal to do it. And as we've said through this, I mean, anybody listening to this that don't doesn't know. Um, the Arthurian legends. I'm sorry, we're just presuming you do, but um, one of the number one tales of the Arthurian story is Le Mordartha by Thomas Mallory. Um, and that's, that, that, that's mainly the basis, isn't it? Uh, the, 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 the meat of this film right. is based and, and on that. And for almost everything that we know of the Arthurian legend is, is sort of built from that. Yes, yeah. And uh, t- Thomas Mallory... He's a bit of an enigmatic figure. Um, he wrote it, I think, 13th century. Um, but he was clearly basing it on, you know, legends that he was aware of, that a lot of them are now, you, you know, gone from us, you know. I mean, you find this very often, that you'll, you'll come across a legend and it's actually based on an earlier version of a legend, you know. Right. Um, but, yeah, Lamour D'Arthur is the, uh, the, the basis of it. Um, we were saying about, you know, it was the um, uh, uh, ground zero for an awful lot of the actors because, yeah, Patrick Stewart's in there, Liam Neeson's in there. A lot of these are unrecognisable because now they are major Hollywood stars and you don't expect to see them in, in effectively a background character, do you? I, and I have yet to find Kieran Hines in the film. That's a good he's, point. He's in the movie, he's in the credits, but I have yet to, to, to be able to pick him out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sherry Lungi, she went on in in, in this country. She had a a, a quite a big career on TV. Um, You know, uh, Nigel Terry went into... uh, He might have already been uh, uh, with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, Helen Mirren already, you know, I I knew her from like Long Good Friday and things like that. So I already knew her. Didn't know Liam Neeson. First time I've ever seen Liam Neeson. First time I'd ever seen Gabriel Byrne. I think that's why Uther is, um, you know, so memorable to me is I'd never seen this actor before. It's like why Christopher Reeve as Superman is so memorable to me. I'd never seen Christopher Reeve before. So in my mind, he's Superman, you know. Um, yeah, and Patrick Stewart, yeah, as Leon de Grants, yes, yeah. Um, and this film was made entirely in Ireland, and, you know, it has been credited as virtually, you know, turning around the Irish uh, filmmaking the film industry, yeah. industry, because it, it, it was on its knees, like the British film industry was, yes. Um, and was filmed all on location, um, so if, you, if you're an Excalibur fan... Um, well, when air travel comes back, you can uh, um, uh, have a, uh, a visiting tour holiday going to the places. Because all the places are still there and they're unchanged as well. Um, it was in County Wicklow, County, County Tipperary and County Kerry, right? Um, all still there. The castle's still there. The castle, um, Leon, Leon de castle was Cahir Castle in Tipperary. Um, the fight between Arthur and Lancelot by that waterfall looks exactly the same. It's still there. Oh, okay. nice. So, yeah, I mean, Wicklow Head is a place in Ireland. That stood in for Tintagel. Tintagel is down in Cornwall. You know, that's where, um, uh, that's the castle, you know, 
Cornwall's castle, you know, that Uther at the beginning is trying to, uh, is laying siege to. Yeah, Yeah. that's Tintagel Castle. Now, Tintagel Castle um, is in Cornwall in southwest England, and that has a legend, uh, an Arthurian connection, in that there is a cave at the base of the cliffs. It's It's a ruined castle on the top of the cliffs, very atmospheric, but there's a cave at the bottom, and that's the cave where Merlin was supposed to have been born. You have a uh, a legend there, right? But that was filmed in Ireland. That was uh, Wicklow Head, all right? Um, you said earlier that uh, the film was going to be like three hours long. Yes. So quite a bit's been cut out. In the first trailer that ever came out, you do see um, a snippet from a missing scene uh, where Lancelot rescues Guinevere. Um, she's being attacked by uh, a bandit in the forest. And that would and- go a long way toward explaining their attraction to one another yes yeah um the next little snippet i don't know which way round this goes i don't know if john borman had already cast nicole williamson or cast helen mirren but (laughs) whichever one he cast first he then cast the other one because he knew they hated each other um because they had had a falling out quite a few years before during a production of macbeth and he thought, well, whichever one was he already had, he got the other one and brought them in because he thought, right, we'll we'll see sparks fly. And and there is definitely, um, yeah, there is some element of that comes across in their performances. Oh, absolutely! You can almost you can almost taste the uh, the dislike between them. Oh yes, yeah. Um, Costume wise, uh, that's uh, Bob Bob Ringwood did the costumes not the armor but the costumes that was bob ringwood um and got a bafta nomination for it uh he went on to do uh the costumes for the first two tim burton films i think he did batman forever as well um he did june he did demolition man he did alien 3 he's a pretty uh, talented guy um terry english is the guy who made the armor all the armor that you see in it um including uh, helen mirren's uh, chest plate thing that she's got um mordred's fantastic gold armor with the gold uh, uh face helmet the, the, the mask. Um, it's always so creepy to me yeah I, I i had the great pleasure of meeting terry english i was at a con um and i was set up I, I, it was one of the troops i was doing with the 501st so i was there early as everyone was setting things up and he was there an incredibly small man he's very very small um but he had there you know i mean he did the armor for aliens he did the Colonial Marines armor. He did the uh, some of the suits in Alien Three, but he had Mordred's gold armor there. You oh know. wow! Yeah, and and you know both versions. You know the adult version and the child one. And the child one is is so small, and um, it was fantastic talking to him. Of course, he's in the film. He's in Excalibur when when Arthur is uh, trying to find a sword for Kay just before he pulls Excalibur out of the stone, when he's going around, you've got a blacksmith in a tent banging out a sword. Oh, yeah, that almost catches him trying to steal one. Yeah, that's Terry English. Nice. That's a little nod nod joke um, to um, say the guy who's made all these these swords and all this armor, there he is. He's in the film. Um, You know, there's there's one thing I wanted to mention about the armor that I really liked. One touch is that uh, I noticed it on Arthur's armor, but I'm assuming it's probably on a, a lot of them. There are pieces on his chest plate and on the back of his armor that look like um, look like what you see on like the back of a of a of a, a painting where you could uh, a hook that you can put uh, put like a you know hang on a nail. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason I noticed that is because back in December, I w- was in New York and I went to the uh, went to the uh, Natural History Museum, and they had on display they had a lot of uh, of suits of armor, middle medieval medieval suit, uh, suits of armor, mm-hmm. and I noticed that on most of them there was a handle up on the right breastplate that was I would assume that I assumed was used to pull on and off. Mm. And I, I'd never noticed it before on anything. And as I'm watching this time, I'm looking for it on all of these suits of armor. And in, instead of that, they've gone with this thing that's on like a, I, I say a hinge, but it's 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 basically just a, a piece that will will flip up and down so that they can pull the armor on and off. Hmm. Just I just a, just a little little thing that I noticed that I appreciated. Hmm. Um, you just reminded me. Um, what's his face? Oh, what's his name? Um, on Mythbusters, the guy, the guy with the beard and the glasses, Adam something. What's his name? He makes all I, the props and stuff. Yeah, Adam. I just know. I know the name Adam. That's all I know. Yeah, he on on his YouTube channel, he's got like a three part documentary where he goes to Terry English's house and he and Terry English make him a Excalibur suit of armor. You know, so I'll try and find that and I'll put the link on the Facebook page. All right. Um, yeah, I've got a quote from John Borman he, here. He says, the film has to do with mythical truth, not historical truth. And, you know, I mean, I, and that is why, you know, you've got suits of armor in the Dark Ages when it shouldn't be, you know. Right, the, um, the anachronisms don't, they don't matter. At a certain point, you go far enough back, you just sort of buy into it. Yeah, and furthermore, I didn't realize this until, until, until I started looking into it. Um, Britain, England is, is not mentioned at all in the film. It's just the land. The name of the, right. uh, of the land isn't mentioned at all. Um, what else? What else? What else? Uh, oh, yes. So we got Mallory as the meat of it, but they also, you know, uh, selected parts from other legends um, to come with them. I mean, the sword between the uh, Lancelot and Guinevere, that comes from the Towers of Tristan and Isolde. Um The knight who returns Excalibur to the water is changed from Bedivere to Percival. And Morgus and Morgan Le Fay, they were merged into one character, you know? So, but right. if you don't, if you don't know all that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And, and I believe also, wasn't Galahad the one who found the grail? It's Galahad. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and in this one, it's Percival. And I, and I actually like that. I like, because it's a film, you, you sometimes have to consolidate characters. And I appreciated the, the times that they did do that. I just kind of felt like some more of that con- consolidation could have made it a little clearer, made it a clearer film narrative, mm. but it would have made it less true to the Arthurian legend that they're trying to present. So I, I certainly understand why they didn't, but I did think it was odd that Percival, which of course we, we meet as a squire or yes. we meet as a, as a kid who becomes a squire to Lancelot. I actually really like that. And I wish that we could have followed his journey a little more as well. Yeah, because of course in in the uh, in the legends, um, Galahad is actually the son of Lancelot in the legends. Um, so yeah, yeah, and he's that, the that, only that, one. He's the only one I believe that leads a completely sinless life. Is that him or is that? Better? He's the one. He's Michael Palin in Monty Python and the right. Holy Grail when he goes to the castle with the uh, with the uh, with, with the, the ladies. The ladies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew we would get back to Monty Python. Right. So, right. Special effects then. Come on, special effects. So, um, the line about when Percival says to um, Arthur, I didn't see anything but the wind on the water, that is directly taken from Mallory. That that line is from Mallory. 
Um, now, the filming of returning Excalibur to the water at that lake, it took three days to film because wow. they were waiting, get this, for the fog to lift. <laughs> so well, I guess they, maybe the fog in the trees was, was legit I, then. It might have been. It might have just been burning off, yes. Now, it's this special effects sequence is a series of cuts. So we've got the live-action Percival preparing to throw the sword, John Borman's daughter, because that's his other daughter under the water. <laughs> so he's got one daughter um, being uh, got at by Uther yeah, in his arm. Right, got it. And that's his other daughter he puts under the water. Um, in danger of drowning, wow. And it's beautiful. I mean, that, that, um, that, that thing she's wearing on her hand and arm that looks like it's made out of um, Mother of Pearl or something. You know? Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It is very beautiful. Yeah, her hand comes up, and as I say, it's definitely not reversed because you see the water droplets come down. We then have a cut, which is a blue screenshot of the sword tumbling through the air. That's not too convincing because the the background to it doesn't match, lighting-wise doesn't match what we, we're seeing with Percival or, you know, the hand. And but you know what? I, I just assumed that was divine light. Oh, is that what it is? That's yeah, what it, I just kind of assumed. It's it. It looks a bit duff to me, but there you go. It, it, um, no, it does. I'm just I'm 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 giving the movie a gimme on that one. Yeah. Now the next cut is a reverse shot as she grabs Excalibur, and that is reverse because she was holding Excalibur. Someone, I don't know how they did it. He must have been on a crane arm or something. Somebody is just out of shot, holding the other end of Excalibur, and whoop, lifts it up out of her hand, and they just reverse the shot. But then the next bit, I think this is immaculate because I still can't get my head around this, that you've got John Borman's daughter is under the water with her arm sticking out of the water, holding the sword, and in a long shot, pulls her arm comes down with the sword and goes under the water. And that is definitely not reversed because you can see as it comes down, the ripples go outwards from where the sword has just gone under the water. So how the heck she... She's got to be quite deep under the water to begin with, but she flawlessly... The arm comes straight down. Yeah, the sword you can, there, there's no angle at all. Yeah, it's, it's like she is sinking down instead of pulling the sword down by her arm. It's like she is sinking down and keeping her arm straight. I don't know if she had an aqualung on or something like that because you know she, she must have. I mean, you would She had girl. to be scuba, scuba up because why, why wouldn't you? And that would visible. have been freezing. That water would have been freezing. I've been to Ireland, you know. You wouldn't want to go swimming in a lake, even in the middle of summer. You know, she, yeah, she's got to be wearing a wetsuit or something and an aqualung. Um, but tip my hat to her. Well, well done. Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't and, want and to and do again, it. And it works. Yeah, it works yes. flawlessly. Yeah. Um, and du during this scene, you've got the sun there. And um, that's all in superimposed. They hadn't lined it up and they were waiting for the sun to set. That is... Uh, a, um, a composited shot. Um, and then Percival returns to Arthur and when he arrives and he sees Arthur leaving, that's front projection. So basically you've got the actor on his horse in front of a cinema screen with the image being projected onto the cinema screen. So he's acting to an image that's on a cinema screen. Which we're doing now with The Mandalorian, but it looks a lot better now. Yeah, very much so. Yes, yeah. And again, lighting-wise, he's got a sort of like a purpley hue to him. I guess they're trying to make it look like it's the sunlight 
uh, on him. But the yeah, sunrise, that, yeah, yeah, that doesn't really um, doesn't really gel quite well. But then we have these terrific shots of the uh, ship going off to Avalon. You know, the the uh, the Celtic uh, uh, afterlife. And and that's how it fi- finishes. Again, the music is terrific. We get an incredibly long shot where the ship is off in the distance, and then it fades to black, doesn't it? It does, and then we get uh, credits. Yes, yeah. So so that's our sequence. It's it's an unusual sequence today. Usually, we're talking um, things blowing up and spaceships and lasers and stuff like that. So th- this is an unusual one. I'm 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 very glad that you uh, suggested this one because it gave me an excuse to get the Blu-ray. And uh, and think about it more than I've thought about it for a very long time. And and yeah, Monty Python Holy Grail, Golden Bennett, like you, you, you know, coming up for forty years, and I've I've never connected the two. It's it's it, and it's amazing. Like I said, when you watch and and again, uh, my girlfriend Pam had never seen it, and so we're watching it, and she said, "Did this come out before or after?" I said, "I knew you were going to ask that. This came out after." <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, it really is amazing. It 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 feels like. It feels like somebody saw Monty Python and said, well, we need a serious version of this story. So, And it makes you realize just how, as silly as it is, just how, in some instances, the story of Monty Python and the Holy Grail is so faithful to the legend. Well, again, it's Terry Jones mainly, but Michael Palin, um, um, Terry Gilliam. I mean, you can say that about Life of Brian. You know, they went on location. It looks authentic. It's a very silly film, you know, but... But look, that's uh, what makes still it work. from yeah. it. Uh, look in the background, and 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 it's not pantomime. It's not silly at all. It it it, it looks authentic. Monty Python, looks- the Holy Grail, looks authentic. Excalibur looks authentic. They're both from the same Dark Ages time. So there's the connection. It it it, it does. And again, you know, I I I sort of slagged the film a little bit, you know, for for being a little narratively uh, incoherent. But but again, this is a film that I will go back to repeatedly because. It really is just gorgeous to look at, and I'm always just trying to find something that I can latch onto, and I find something different each time that I can latch onto, so I figure by the time I've watched it three or four more times, I'll finally really be where you are with it. I think but you I, need I, I think you need a cinema visit to do it. I think that's it. I think that that would probably do it and it wouldn't hurt if I had to walk 2 miles home across, you know, <laughs> a bog of some sort yeah. to, to to get home. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, well thank you very much for today, Jeff. Well, thank you for having me. Have a think about what you want to do next time, all right? I will um, ponder. Yeah, yeah, you, you can go left field again or something a more a bit more uh, mainstay. It's totally up to you, all right? I will do that. All right. Thank you very much. See you Thank next time. You. Oh, no. Hang on. Hang on. Oh, what, hang yes. on, Jeff. We haven't rated it. We haven't. And I need, I need to plug a couple of things as well, if you don't mind. All right. Let, let's do the rating, then you do okay. the plug. That's the trade-off, all right? Okay. So out of 10, 10 being uh, the best thing you've ever seen in your life, and a 5 being average, and a 0 being the worst. I'm going to give Excalibur a 7, just because it is so gorgeous, and, it's, uh, and, and the... Uh, the technical aspects of it were so meticulously researched and and paid attention to. I, it, it's it's it really is a seven All for right. me. Mine's an eight. Um, it's because I just love that shot of you know the arm holding Excalibur and then going straight back down again. You know that's just sublime. So it really is one of my favorite images in in film history at all. Yeah. Uh, overall. So yeah. yeah. So all right, seven and a half it gets then. Excalibur gets seven and a half. I mean, it's going to be interesting when I put it on the Facebook tally thing just to see what 
sits alongside it, just above it and just below it, where, you know, Excalibur sits with all the other, you know, horror and science fiction and fantasy that we've already done. So, yeah. That'll be interesting, yeah. All right. Do you want to get your plug out? Yes, I would like to say uh, my my podcast network, Marvin Dog Media, we've launched uh, in the la- since the last time I was on the show, we've launched a new show and relaunched an old show. Uh, last year in 2019, we launched the Saturday Morning Supercast, which is about Saturday morning cartoons and breakfast cereal. Uh, each episode focuses on a different cartoon from the 70s, 80s, or 90s. I think we go back as far as the 60s, actually. And uh, then we also talk about a uh, a breakfast cereal that was available at the time that the, right. the show was in production. Uh, and just sort of, because I'm a big fan of both, because I grew up as a fat kid. And uh, we'd have a good time. My friend Corey and my friend Olivia join me. And we, uh, and we, also, we sometimes have uh, fill-in hosts uh, to talk, if we have people that are particularly passionate about a certain title. Then we'll mm-hmm. have somebody else on. Uh, we've had Chris and Tim from Star Wars and Character on a couple of times. Uh, Chris insisted on talking about the Smurfs. I don't know if that tells you anything about him. Oh dear. And uh, and we've also just uh, just uh, earlier this year we relaunched the pilot episode, which is one of my favorite shows that I've ever done. And that one is uh, a television review show. We watch the first episode of a different television series on each episode, and we we rate it and review it uh, and, and talk about how it works as a standalone episode, how it set up what came after it mm-hmm. and how the series progressed from there. Uh, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I grew up, I watched way too much TV as a kid, so I'm kind of an addict about it. And so that one's a lot of fun for me. The first episode back uh, is Frasier. Right. Which is, a, which was a lot of fun. And uh, again, my friend Corey joins me there and our friend Regina Davis, who uh, has been on, uh, the Assembly of Geeks Network comic book noob. If any of your listeners listen to that, uh, you, you'll know her from from that show. And again, we have a lot of fun with that, and those are both available on Marvin Dog Media, along with Talking Toys with Taylor and Jeff. Well, there's a, there, there's a few links to put up on the Facebook page. Yes, yes, yes. The, the Saturday morning cartoon one has has uh, passed me by, but that sounds very interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to download some of them because uh, okay, well, we we have a good time with it. Well, over here in the UK, you know, we got a, an awful lot of the um, Saturday morning cartoon shows. You know, it was a staple of Saturday mornings for us as well. So uh, I, I think we were getting them a bit later, though, uh, than you guys. So that's going to be interesting. All right. I'll, well, I'll put the links up. And, uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. So folks can uh, have a listen. All right. OK, well, second attempt at this. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you for having me, Eric. I enjoyed it as always. All right. And have a ponder. All right. And, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers, then, Jeff. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Gods! Knights! Squires! Prepare for battle! 